two boys in the 90s. I am Nate. I'm Bob. And Bob, today we'll get started by giving you another commercial to watch, and I uh, want to get your reactions to it if I could. Here we go. MTV has the power of 10,000 buzzes. Worst song ever. Were they were the Beastie Boys really buzzbin worthy? Were they alternative? I think the sabotage and uh sure shot was a little bit more I don't know, alternative rocking. Maybe yeah, they well, yeah, ill communication had a lot of good instrumentals on it. Yeah, but I, I don't know. Around that it... time they kind of realized that the Beastie Boys could play punk music as well as produce hip hop, so maybe that was why they included them. But I mean, I would not lump the Beastie Boys in with Dinosaur Jr. or The Offspring or that accursed, awful, awful Weezer. <laughs> but you want to destroy their sweater? That's right. Hashtag leading off with controversial opinion. Weezer is terrible. <laughs> There's a, I don't know. I, I like the blue album, but anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> um, they go in the pile with Tori for me. Yeah, I, I guess. Well, that's kind of a weird combination. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they could go on tour together. I, that would be a weird, weird one. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. <laughs> I would like to see I would like to see the two fan bases meld together. Yes. Yeah, Buzzbin was interesting. I, I it completely lost I, I completely forgot about it until maybe I don't know, like show number three with you because you had mentioned something like that, and I was like, Oh yeah, Buzzbin. And then when I, every time I looked up Buzzbin, it was just a compilation C D. So Yeah. I didn't know if it was, I didn't remember if it was like a segment on MTV or if they just sort of threw that out there. Like, like here, here's our buzz bin. I think it was, it was for like the less, I mean, no, I won't say less popular, but and not even up and coming. I mean, you know, dinosaur junior had been around for a little while, but it was just the catchiest songs off of like alternative nation or 120 minutes. I think if I remember vaguely way in the, the, early aughts before there was streaming and everything else i would and i worked at i worked at a record store i would find like copies of the buzzbin cd and i'd throw it on because you know that i mean we come from that generation where if you wanted you know you didn't want to buy the whole album it might pop up on a buzzbin or a now that's what i call music Hmm. so you throw that on and you didn't have to buy 20 different albums you could just buy that one yeah I'm I'm looking here. It says that Buzzbin started in '87, actually, and ended in 2004. Ooh. And um, and they turned it into MTV's Discover and Download <laughs> because because catching anything on MTV anymore was obviously the way of the dinosaur. And why even call it MTV anymore? They don't show videos, and now it's like catch out, check out my new video on YouTube. Right. Well, speaking of um, things back in the past, uh, we're talking today about, I guess, a, an elephant in the room of every 90s podcast that you've probably listened to so far. 
Um, I'm talking, of course, about the Seattle grunge movement um, that happened up there. Um, we we thought that we'd share our perspective on what it was like to uh, live as a, a pair of preteen and early teen music lovers from Southern California. But this was a, a music rock movement that spawned some interesting worldwide clothing trends as well as music trends. And every big label wanted a piece of every new band from Seattle. And, uh, and bands not from Seattle that happened to sound like the bands from Seattle. Right. So, I mean, Bob, can you remember your first taste of grunge music and what, what was your initial initial thoughts? <laughs> I was thinking about that this morning uh, when I was working out. I knew we were going to record this and I was trying to think of where my initial sampling of grunge or what got me into grunge per se. And at the time, I mean, maybe sixth grade, I was still knee deep into, you know, whatever it is my parents kind of listened to. So I would spend a lot of time listening to KBS 95. <laughs> great times and all the greatest oldies, KBS 95. <laughs> but you know, I watched a lot of MTV too. So I heard some of the, you know, initial Seattle stuff. You know, your I knew who Nirvana was. I knew who Pearl Jam was. And two things, I guess my first purchases into the grunge world or what got what grabbed me was I had heard Jeremy and I was very interested in Jeremy and I purchased, we're going to go way back here. So I, I purchased for $10, the 10 album on cassette from a fellow student at the small parochial school you and I attended, whose name was ironically Jeremy. <laughs> His last name started with an M and I'm not going to say it out loud, but you might, I don't know if you remember who I'm talking about, Yeah, but I bought a copy of 10 off him for 10 bucks and threw it on the tape player and I was like I really liked it. And then the other when the other foot came in like you I would stay up Friday Saturday nights catch the late night MTV shows and I'd heard Plush. And I'm like, "Oh, it's not a bad song." I didn't necessarily necessarily care for Creep by Stone Temple Pilots because for one it has my name in it and no thank you. <laughs> and I got tired of people referencing that all the time. But what really I think what really pushed me into the grunge arena was the stp purple album something mm. about hearing vaseline for the first time i was like all right i'm kind of into this and then you tie that back in with having heard big empty off the crow soundtrack which was on that album too that was like boom boom and then you buy the album and you realize you know it's got interstate love song on it and that was my entry into the grungery and it just kind of spun from there you know you do all the the nirvana back catalog uh, Super Unknown by Soundgarden, which I picked up off your recommendation. Nice. So that was my my entry into the world. And I was interested in Nirvana with Nevermind, but what really got me into Nirvana was Heart Shaped Box. Mm. That was was really my the impetus for me to be like, oh, I want to hear more of this because I didn't necessarily care for Smells Like Teen Spirit. And I think we mentioned that on the Impactful Playlist episode. Right. Yeah, I I was thinking about it myself. I was about 11 years old when Nirvana took over in the MTV airwaves with Smells Like Teen Spirit. And um, and the previously mentioned Justin R. from our former school had purchased the Nevermind cassette. <laughs> and I was thinking about it. This kid had so much influence basically over what I was into for some reason. 
<laughs> like everything he everything he everything he had that I wanted. Um <laughs> and uh, he was such an outgoing kid who wore like GNS surf t shirts, Jordan Sevens and and now I had like you know, he had the hottest cassette that dropped the you know, on the playground. So <laughs> So I needed that needed that little boost of uh, of coolness I felt, you know, in my life. So later that month I was able to convince my mom to let me purchase that tape. And I was addicted to that song honestly, um which was constantly rewound to the beginning over and over until I was satisfied with my my experience. But friends around me like our other friend Justin purchased albums like Pearl Jam 10 and we rocked out to that. I think we rocked out together probably from your cassette as well. Right. And um but it was it's interesting cuz it was marketed more towards like the Rock 105 3 crowd. <laughs> like no, no, the, uh, no. Well, you got to go back, dude. It wasn't Rock 105 then. It was Rock 102.1. Oh, oh, oh. Good, good do you remember call. that? Yes, I do. And then everything kind of switched over. Then it went to 105.3. Yeah, everything everything kind of switched um uh, rock stations that would play like butt rock and stuff like that. Um <laughs> All stuff I listen to. <laughs> well, basically, like they were, they were, uh, they were marketing Pearl Jam towards like the Metallica Black Album crowd and the Slaughter and Duff Leopard crowd. And um, so um, he ended up buying Nirvana's Incesticide compilation, and we just listened to that insanity that Kurt Cobain sang about over and over again. And then, like, basically, that was my primary source for grunge uh, until, like, a year later when I bought Stuntable Pilot's Core, which had sex-type thing and plush on it, which you described. And then all of our exposure to grunge came from MTV and local stations picking up on these singles and other alternative groups like Jane's Addiction and Faith No More and Red Hot Chili Peppers and Smashing Pumpkins. But really, would you... Is Jane Jane's addiction's not grunge. They're no. They're your 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 atypical college rock. I don't know if it's college rock, but but that's uh, what what I found interesting. I mean, I'll get into it later when when I was watching the the grunge um, documentary that was released called Hype. Grunge was not a particular sound. Like it was all types of sounds, and basically, grunge was like the marketed word that media gave to this like Northwest movement that was going on like throughout the entire thing. Kind of like Madchester and wow. the Grebo thing over in UK. Yeah, it was not like one particular solidified, agreed upon sound. It was just like, here's the movement. You know, and then, but I, I just lumped Jane's in there and like Red Hot Chili Peppers and stuff because they, they were around at the time, but they weren't, and they everything was kind of influenced by whatever you know was on the radio and stuff. It was just uh, that Jane's coming from L.A. I mean, Jane's was not the Northwest sound, you know, like the the Washington sound, but it was basically the exact same like kind of rocking out that they would do. Although, although I don't remember any Pearl Jam or Soundgarden songs with a funky bass line and either Eddie Vedder or Chris Cornell trying to like rap the lyrics. Right. The sound coming out of North, like, so what I found like through the documentary was basically it was that nobody was coming up to the Pacific Northwest to Washington to, to as a big band, like they would not go there and tour anymore because it was like on the corner of the United States. So they were kind of like eh let's let's just let them you know be alone and like let them have their their music scene whatever it may be but they didn't really have 
so they didn't have a lot of big bands touring there at the time so they kind of created their own little pod of you know music endeavors and and went from there like just kind of friends hanging out at, at each other's shows and um basically that's how all it is is like a bunch of rock that like and they had different different genres there was like noise rock and hardcore punk and heavy metal even so there was all these like different styles getting thrown together and then basically whenever whenever that took off was right around the time that sub pop records kicked off there was just a couple of of key players called um jonathan poneman and bruce pavitt who were like an a and r guy and then the the president of sub pop itself that basically turned some of the more you know they they deemed some of them more worthy than the others and they kind of threw them up on their label and that's what kind of got them you know a lot of exposures it was uh what i remember about the time is that everything seemed so dumb like the like the lyrics and the and music playing and stuff it was just sort of dumbed down it was kind of sloppy Nobody really cared about the sound or the way that they were doing things. But as I watched the documentary, I mean, it makes a lot more sense that back then they just sort of wanted to say like, yeah, I'm a loser. Like, oh, we're, we're horrible. It, there was like the self-deprecation that you'd see in like comedy where it's, it's a lot easier to get that out in the open. And then you have the freedom to kind of do whatever you want because who cares, you know, what you think. I guess it's really easy to think of yourself as a loser because then you don't care if people like you or not. You know, that's sort of the, the idea. And then you can do whatever you want. And it's funny. Like, they would they would release some, like, really horrible lyrics stuff, like, back in the day. They really didn't care what was in a lot of music. A lot of, like, Mud Honey music is like that, where they just sort of made dumb nursery rhyme sort of, <laughs> you know, sounding songs. And then you would be like... Uh, why why is this a song <laughs> like why why is this out there someone said to me once that there was the aesthetic of dumb about the seattle music scene that the music wasn't stupid but it was dumb you know mud honey's not stupid but they're a little bit dumb and that's because they really just didn't care there was all about the right. distorted um distorted guitars and you know that that sort of thing, but you did you did have your actual bands out there trying to put out their their heartfelt lyrics and and stuff like that, but they just were smaller bands who didn't really care about getting larger until uh, certain bands sort of stepped in the in the mix, like um, like the Melvins, which were you know I never really got into the Melvin Melvins, but yeah, me they were. Yeah, they're like I guess influential because basically what they did was they took music of um Black Flag and maybe some of the Stooges and they sort of slowed it way down. So like they used the same power chords that were used in in punk music but then just slowed it way down. They made it all about the noise, all about getting loud. You know, Melvins were basically like sludge metal, where it was like kind of like just <laughs> I don't know. They had a uh, had a sound all of its own, a less a, le a less a less doom and gloom type of negative. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I would keep the doom and gloom kinda. in there, but <laughs> but it was like yeah, but, but less like about I guess specific topics, topics. and like a <laughs> yeah, nothing that I could really hold you know uh, attention. Less about chicks and black hair yeah 
October and fire. <laughs> right. It was kind of hard to like uh, keep my attention towards Melvin's music, but yeah, they're they're one I never grabbed. Like even knowing like they toured with Nine Inch Nails, and apparently Trent was a fan. Blah blah blah. Never got into the Melvins. Right. Never got into the Melvins. Never got into Mud Honey. Remember, you had a Mud Honey album, but it didn't grab me. I had a very offshoot Mud Honey album. It was like some long, long name I can't even remember now. But they, uh, it was not Super Fuzz Big Muff or what, or Big Muff Super Fuzz, whatever that <laughs> stupid thing was. Um, oh, what a what a devil entendre! <laughs> right. I mean, they they created that um, based on the guitar pedals called the same thing. Like basically, it was just what you saw around the you know the shop probably working on their album. But I guess Melvins were, were really huge because they were friends of Nirvana who actually introduced um, uh, Dave Grohl to the band. So without the Melvins there, then I, I guess they wouldn't have gone to that Scream concert that I guess uh, Dave Grohl was the drummer in at the time. So Ooh, it's all so kismet serendipitous. Yeah, I mean, they were, like I said, they were just sort of the the audience of the bands were basically the bands themselves, like kind of playing for themselves, like almost like friends playing. So, I mean, and Nirvana was no different, even though, you know, the, but they found themselves in the club scene early on, I guess, that, um, you know, and got kind of locally known for a while. It, it really showed me like how out of left pocket, like you could just become an overnight superstar just based on, you know, I guess the, the labels that are pushing you because even Nirvana themselves, like whenever it smells like teen spirit hit the, like they, they, they knocked Michael Jackson off the top of the, of the charts. Um, and, and they were over in Germany, I guess when that happened. So, and Kurt and Chris were like, Wait, what happened? <laughs> like we, like we're we're a big, huge thing now. Right. Like Chris Novoselic remarked that that he could buy himself a house now, and <laughs> it was like a big deal. But um, uh, but he was always saying like how it was sort of like a bittersweet moment because here Kurt was dealing with like heroin abuse and a lot of stuff that was still going on back then that wasn't really all that publicized. It was more about them getting on MTV. There's a lot to be said about nirvana and as a youngster i was all about it mm-hmm. and i mean it was like a weird conundrum i am in a conundrum but it was a weird dichotomy because for some reason like we mentioned in other episodes i was raised fairly liberally kind of watch what i want listen to what i want and i mean at the point that i was looking to buy in utero and never mind I I owned like Vulgar Display of Power by Pantera. I may or may not have already gotten my copy of the Downward Spiral. And for some reason Nirvana was like a no. I'm like, why? <laughs> Cause you know, and then the whole thing with Kurt and Suicide comes up. I'm like, really? Like, really? That's why? <laughs> but you know, through a, a younger person's purview, like Nirvana was was all the rage and Maybe I'm not a big fan of Nevermind, but I love In Utero, and there's a lot of stuff on Incesticide that I like. And I remember going to buy Incesticide, I think, with you, because I got like a warehouse gift certificate or something for my birthday. And my copy of Incesticide had two liner notebooks. And that was like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's the holy grail. 
it is you know like my copy of incesticide had two liner notebooks just like my copy of portrait of an american family by marilyn manson had two parental advisory stickers one on the book <laughs> and one on the case i thought i was just you know the cat's pajamas right there <laughs> but it's interesting little, like the small reprints or, or mis misprints exactly but it's like it misprints it's interesting looking at it then looking at it now i was all about listening in utero all the time unplugged in new york unplugged is actually a really good album <clears throat> but looking at it now and it you kind of pick the stuff that stays with you i'll occasionally pick up uh, and listen to in utero maybe not the whole thing but you know francis farm will have a revenge on seattle for some reason i can't quite sit through all apologies anymore <laughs> uh, penny royalty still a good song uh, serve the servant scentless apprentice the heart-shaped box and a lot of that stuff but to me it just doesn't it doesn't get me anymore like if we're going just based off and i hate saying the seattle sound because in all honesty they if you took like the big four of seattle you've got your your, your sound garden your pearl jam alice in chains nirvana maybe sound garden and pearl jam sound a little alike but Alice in Chains doesn't sound like any of them, to me at least. Because well, yeah, that's I mean that's that metal influence that that was around at the time as well. I think uh, that that sort of that sort of came into the Soundgarden sound as well. But, right, and I'll I'll discount that first Alice in Chains album, Facelift. That sounds a little, I guess, more generic. Yeah, but Dirt, Dirt is just it is it's its own beast and you know what allison chains also had going for it that the other bands didn't have is that great harmonizing between lane staley and jerry cantrell mm -hmm. like no one else no one else did that and i was listening to like dirt last night um you never really heard a lot of grunge music kind of with layered vocals or, or anything and oh, no. i guess yeah like in on dirt it was like a bunch of him singing over himself and Stuff like that, where you're like, okay, this is different. And well, and to me, no one really has the same tone or tenor that Lane Staley has. Like he's got his own unique sound. Yeah, I was looking up his his, his availability, like vocal wise. I guess it was a huge range too, but because of his kind of haunting like sound in his voice, it it sort of didn't sound. It didn't sound as, I guess, impressive or kind of, um, I don't know. Uh, his like tonality was just so, so tonal quality. Yeah, it was just so different than than the rest of the singers out there. Right, and let's before we we go too much further. There's a band from Seattle that no one really lumps in with the Seattle scene ever. They they aren't mentioned. They're not, I guess, per se grunge, but they did have an album at the same. I think it was the same year. Boy, I might be I might be messing my dates up here. It was 90 or 91. They had a huge album from Seattle, and that's Queensryche. Hmm. And they're just as they're just as as much Seattle as the rest of them, but they don't ever get lumped in with that scene. I mean, it might be because their first album was like 83, 84, and they have a different, they're much more metal 
Well, and and their intention too is a lot different than the rest of the bands out in Seattle. Like the rest of the bands oh, yeah. in Seattle were sort of like, let's just say the hometown. Let's just, just play for ourselves. We didn't care about getting signed. Like there was a there was a sort of it was an anti-establishment, but it was at the same time like like who cares? Like kind of like it was an indifference back then that was so unique to these bands that we're talking about today. Like. That's that's what really makes grunge. Grunge is basically indifference, and it kind of makes fun of itself. It doesn't care about you know like the necessarily like being uh, like a showboating you know band as much as it as it cared about rocking out. Like it didn't care if the the one uh, it, basically their 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 performances were more for themselves. They wanted to like rock out and just go crazy uh versus getting the the sounds exactly right like the uh, oh my solo was off last night they like they didn't care you know it was it was that kind of feel it wasn't it wasn't technical and they well and none of the seattle band none of the grunge bands were writing like a 15 song concept album either right <laughs> yeah and like and they were they were kind of like inconsistent like there was just like they the, each each band was different from each other like in their sound and I think what Queen, Queensryche was was more like a very standard-based metal band that was just happened to be in Seattle at the time. But they, they were signed to like people like EMI and Atlantic and Roadrunner. Yeah, they were, and they were big. And by the time I mean grunge hit, you're talking that's the same time as Empire coming out. Right, and Empire was Empire was huge, but that's it's much more metal. And then they had Silent Lucidity, which was a big hit. Yeah. Anyway, that was just my divergence because no one ever mentions that Queensryche is from Seattle and I happen to enjoy quite a bit of Queensryche and it's 90s related. Yeah, I, I just wouldn't call it like grunge necessarily. Ooh, like it's just, it's not at all. Sort of like just doing its own like sound. But so, um, but yeah, back in the day, I mean, like the fashion trends also set in really quickly, like uh, the worldwide, basically like the wearing of ripped up jeans and flannel patterns was easy to do enough. And what was mentioned in the documentary <laughs> as well, like that I wanted to take away was that where punk was very like anti-fashion and uh, very, you know, they, at the time they thought that they were just going to, you know, spit on fashion. Basically grunge was more fashion indifference again with like the indifference they just didn't care what it what it stood for they were just wanted to have something you know it, like, of their own it was just sort of like this weird like slacker look <laughs> dad you cannot wear that that's a rastafarian hat hey i've been safarian since before you were born right and also too i think the punk thing had purpose and like you mentioned indifference I would slightly counterpoint that to say that grunge was just, I think what grunge did, and at the time, right, so you've got, as grunge is coming up, it's beating head on with, and I, I hate that they always say like, oh, grunge killed hair metal. No, hair metal was already kind of dying out, right? Like people were sick of the poisons and the Motley Crues. And the, all it was very derivative and it all kind of sounded alike. And I remember re listening to an interview with uh, Sebastian Bach from Skid Row saying there was a formula. You know, you do your big rocker, that's your first single, and then you have to follow it up with the power ballad, mm -hmm. right? So 
Skid Row leads off with Youth Gone Wild, and then they follow that up with what is it itself? It's a pretty good song. Uh, I remember you, right? So hair metal's on this formula. So you've got hair metal, and then you've got GNR, which is GNR is just your classic kind of rock and roll band, but they. They were starting to jump the shark because they released two albums on the same day. I love Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, but there's no consistency to it. It's kind of like the White Album. Every song kind of jumps and there's no glue holding it together. So hair metal's already kind of on its way out and grunge is coming up. But what grunge is, at least to me, is just back to basics kind of stuff. Maybe it's indifference or maybe it's... We're getting back to it's four to five guys, jeans and T-shirts, playing rock music. Kind of very, I guess, very Metallica, Metallica in a way where, you know, yeah, now Hetfield's got his cool custom patch jacket, whatever. But in its essence, they've always been four guys that get up there. They play in jeans and T-shirts. You could be us. We just happen to write some good songs. And that's a lot of what grunge was to me initially is none of these guys are fashionistas. You know, no one, they're not wearing makeup. They're not trying to look pretty. Really, their fashion came out of, if you think about it, where where do they live? They live in the Pacific Northwest, right? It rains a lot. It's usually cloudy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you wear flannel. It's logging country, or at least it was. So you're going to wear flannels. You're going to wear jeans. You're going to wear like work clothes. Yeah. So I get the whole indifference, but at the same time, it's like it's meeting this arc where this thing that was big and bloated and excessive is on its way out anyways. And then they come in and it's just, look, they're everyday looking guys. They're not wearing rhinestones and they don't have these big videos playing in front of massive crowds and they're running around on stage and none of them are Brett Michaels. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that to me is really what some of it is in its essence is just that like we're just normal people and i mean <laughs> right. really you know as well as i do eddie vetter's not even from seattle he's from san diego well yeah no he was he was implanted basically into like i mean he was in like what in the background of Soundgarden when he first began but then so he was in the area yeah he was he... he was in the area but i mean he graduated from a high school in encinitas yeah san diego high school yeah. yeah i i stood so i used to work for that school district people and i was i was <laughs> doing grounds and maintenance work over a over a break from my, my regular job from a, during a school break and i stood on the field that eddie vetter graduated on listening to like verses and i was like sibilance <laughs> like everything ties together <laughs> but uh and then i found his name and like you know the uh the the donation thing for the the art you know multi-purpose room mm. like the draw like the theater at the school and i found you know like top contributor don't know don't know oh any better <laughs> didn't you have a, a story too like with the because his last name was mueller right mueller yeah. yeah so here's a fun fact for you kids eddie vetter's stepdad is a lawyer and just so happens to be a family law lawyer and when my parents were getting divorced in the late 90s uh eddie vetter's stepdad who he sang about happened to be my dad's divorce attorney and <laughs> you know wouldn't you know like just one of those odd coincidences and it's like well how well do you know that do you know him anymore 
but so no, I never met Eddie Vedder that way. But yeah, it was just one of those fun coincidences. Also, to know it, we're just get through the Pearl Jam stuff here. There have been two Pearl Jam albums in the '90s released on my birthday. Nice. Ten was one of them, and No Code was the other. So I will let you go ahead, listeners, and figure out when that is. <laughs> but both of those dropped on my birthday. One was ten. One was sixteen. Yeah, we'll drop the coordinates in the show notes where you can stand and uh, and and <laughs> and pray to the meteor to come down and and reveal what date that was. Yeah, yeah. But um, you can burn your sage. Yeah. So one one note that I wanted to make about Nirvana before we, get, we stray too far away from there is that because they became an overnight success, um, it was it was evident that Kurt was so confused on how to feel with his international uh, celebrity at the time, and so uh, he would go on stage. And what I loved about him was that he would go and and just sing the songs that he released on the album so horribly bad, and he would like change their lyrics and. Um, it just, to me, it was, the Nirvana thing was more than the music. It was because this guy had like a personality. He, he was comedic. He had like a, a way of kind of just coming across that was more than just a, a robotic singer on stage. So. Strap on your guitar. You want us to play Nine Inch Nail songs? Um, I just loved like how they would entertain themselves and sing like the taped performances, like for for shows like Top of the Pops. Like they would play it like just sort of. They would leave their guitar lying down and just dancing around and. Uh, Dave Grohl would get up and like just start like like not even playing like the uh, the drums. He would just like play the cymbals, and it was just something about that time that kind of that 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 energy I feel matched with the grunge movement that was going on in Seattle. I could I could see that going on on stage anywhere in Seattle because they really just didn't care how that came across. But at the same time, it's like you were found by sub pop, and now you're this big deal. So now they had to play like that, that a lot of things mattered when they really didn't. And uh, basically like, I, I, yeah, I love like when, when Kurt would dress up in that big poofy yellow dress on MTV, that was an iconic time. His big sunglasses. Yeah. His big, huge sunglasses. Like they, he was a superstar. Um, he, he would come out on stage in that wheelchair and sing Bette Miller until he fell down. Um, I mean, he was just, he was a goofy guy and I, I love that about him. And people wanted to legitimize his like music writing capabilities in fictional movies like Last Days, which was by Gus Van Zant. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, but it was um, I don't know. It was just like I, I think people like try to go like, oh, what an amazing songwriter, this, that, and the other. Okay, at times, yes, he had like an interesting verse, chorus, verse. Like that was his his sort of thing that he like would try to do with every song which is fine and like at times they went they took from the pixies to kind of like build up build up until you get to the chorus when it was like loud and then you just drop it all the way down um and 
honestly like his his documentary the montage from heck was great um but to me it, it, it'll always be about his personality um and the band with chris and dave Grohl. i mean they the the three of them were kind of like playing off each other like isn't this so crazy how we happen to be up on this and i'll take that forever as being what nirvana was i don't solidify it with one album that they put out like well you have so many to choose from well yeah i know it's like it's not like they release <laughs> a ton but from the from the few that they did it was sort of like okay like this is an interesting kind of way to to record things and to be as a celebrity like in quotes you know Ooh, let's go rapid fire right off right off the top of your head with what favorite nirvana song go i really love aneurysm that was on it was on incesticide um sob that was mm, hmm? that was that was that's in my top five now i gotta think of a different one <laughs> the uh I, I actually put like the the number one song i'd put out there just as like a kind of kurt like onesie is like a great cover of the beatles and i love her which was on the montage of heck as well So he did a lot of, hmm. he, he brought in all types of weird, like, you know, he loved Aerosmith. He loved Led Zeppelin. He loved, like, he was not a guy that just was about local bands and that sort of thing, but he did have this way about him where it was like, here, let's just like mess with the song now. And, you know, he, he really just didn't care. Now I'm trying to, now I'm trying to think of which one I want to pick here. Like looking at it in utero. I'll say, like, because you were listing off some of your favorites there. I like the kind of off-kilter ones, like the radio-friendly unit shifter I, I would, and Tourette's. Like, all those that were really just, like, abrasive and crazy, like, that didn't seem like they should have been there, were kind of my favorites. And it's weird because Heart Shaped Box was, like, the lead single, but it was just so kind of like a downer mood. Even when I bought the album, I hardly ever played that song. I love that song. What heart shaped box? Oh yeah, oh. yeah, that's that's my jam. But I think you know. Now that I'm thinking about it, I I keep I was running through all the Nirvana songs in my head when I asked you what your favorite was, mm -hmm. and I was like, all right, aneurysms is a good one. I'm like, what's mine? You know, what's what's the Nirvana song I want to jump on? And I'm thinking I'm going mentally going through in utero, and I'm mentally going through. I mean, I'm going through incesticide. I'm going through never mind, and I wouldn't pick anything off never mind. Bleach. I'm like, Neh. oddly enough, I think if I had to pick a Nirvana track for me, and this might be a little left field because this is it was released posthumously, but you know you're right. Oh, from uh, Mighty from the box Whisker. set. Mm -hmm. Well, and they put it on the, the studios on the box. The studio versions on that box set they put out, or the oh yeah, like, see the box set or the best of that. I found that I found last night that they actually um, Hole actually played that on their unplugged um, performance on MTV. Really? Yeah, it was so weird. I have 
that on tape somewhere. All I remember from there unplugged is he hit me and it felt like a kiss. Oh yeah. But yeah, I would I would side with you know you're right. Mm. There's something about that song. Like it's got it creeps and then it rocks. And I mean, I guess it, it's not like the best drumming of Dave Crawl, but because I don't think that there's a lot for him to work with in that song. But no. upon reflection with age, yeah, I would pick You Know You're Right. Or I think I've always had a soft spot for Francis Farmer will have a revenge on Seattle. For some reason, that song's always, always stuck with me. Yeah. But as far as I wouldn't, I don't think I'd take anything off Nevermind. And Sesticide, I mean, you did aneurysm, so that was, that's probably my favorite song off that record. I like Sliver off there. Sliver is good. I'm a sucker for Molly's Lips. Yeah. Because that's just a real good, straightforward, I mean, I wouldn't say pop, but it's a pretty straightforward rock song. And then Bleach, About a Girl is good. I always loved school. I I don't know why. Something about it. But no, I think You Know Your Rights. You Know Your Right would be my jam. Hmm. I didn't know that um, Love Buzz was actually a cover, too. Yeah, I learned that. Yeah. That was weird, too, because it sounds like a Nirvana song. Yeah, they have a way of just like making them sound. Even the um, the Molly's lips that you referenced, that's like a Vaseline's cover, right? Um, and I mean, they have like ver- you know various. They they take a lot of like covers and kind of make them their own. I feel like in a way they do, and their covers are usually pretty good. I mean, Man Who Sold the World, Jesus Don't Want Me for a Sunbeam, you know the three songs they did with the Meat Puppets. Mm-hmm. Because their version of Lake of Fire... Have you ever heard the original Meat Puppets version? No. It's not that good. But that (laughs) Unplugged version's pretty good. Same with Oh Me. Oh Me, yeah. That song's really good. Their cover, their Meat Puppets original was meh. Right. I think revisiting the Unplugged, it was... There were some memorable moments like watching that. But for me, I can't get into it that much. It's just like the same kind of sound over and over again. But unless, unless you sit and like listen to the entire album, I feel. Yeah. And you kind of get like, you kind of get back into that like nostalgic feel about like what the album was. Then I think that's what kind of sold it for me was it's a pretty good album. But... Oh yeah. As, as a live album, like, cause I bought the Muddy Banks of the Wishka and yeah, I mean, live there, I don't want to say they're hit and miss, but not all that great either right i just remember that like video like magazines and stuff would always throw like all apologies on just by itself and the unplugged and i'm like yeah that was a moment but (laughs) it just didn't feel like as a one-off like that it should be like a single it was just sort of no or penny royalty i'm like yeah they're, they're fine but they're not you know it works better as an album i feel than just like one-off songs that you just come across i feel well i'll I'll lead off the next segment here with uh with a sound garden redaction <laughs> so as as i go as i go back through the chris cornell timeline I, I i made a previous statement that i hated everything that chris cornell 
saying or anything that came out of his mouth. But uh, <laughs> basically, I you know I respect the guy. Um, he was a drummer first, who kind of wanted to sing, so they got him out from the drums and in front of the audience, which was an interesting take. And there are some great tracks with him. Um, the Robert Plant impression gets a little old, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, wear, it wears on even me, and I like a lot of Soundgarden. But the band is so amazing that I mean, whenever it's whenever he's mixed right into a track, I can feel a little bit more, uh, a little better with him. So like stuff like Outshined, I, I felt was a great mix with him in there, even though he he, he gets a little out there. Oh, he yeah. is mixed well enough that it's like everything is kind of cohesive. It's not like this, you know, blaring voice of his out there in front. And then most of Super Unknown, honestly, I'm pretty okay with. And I, and I don't know if that's just because I owned it and I played it like so many times, but... I also feel that it was mixed well enough where it wasn't a glaring thing out in front. And then, yeah, I love Blow Up the Outside World. Like, I thought, thought that was a great song that he did. And then also, like, he does some amazing covers, like War Pigs and Freebird. He's done a lot. It's not 90s, but his cover of Nothing Else Compares to You is really good. Yeah. And then he did... He has a few good solo songs I like, and mainly they're from soundtracks, which is one is Seasons off singles, which I, think, I know we talked uh-huh. about. There's another off the Great Expectations soundtrack, um, Sunflowers, I believe it's called. That's a really good song. But yeah, so like with, with Soundgarden, Soundgarden was an interesting um, addition to the grunge movement because it was, they, you know, they were taking like different time signatures. Like they were actually like really super confident musicians, which were kind of like lumped into a movement that was sort of looked at as like, oh, well, these people don't care. They don't, you know, they're not interested in music theory. They're not, you know, trying to actually be anything. But then Soundgarden actually came along and were showing people, you know, how it's done. Like they they wanted to be out in front. Yeah. As far as, I mean, all the Seattle bands, te- I mean, as far as technical or, I don't want to say sound, but yeah, technical. They seem to be the real upfront ones because <clears throat> Nirvana had that real, you know, laissez-faire, don't care attitude. Although, I mean, Dave Grawl is an amazing drummer. You know, like they all have, mm-hmm. they all have like these little pieces that if you pluck, like, like let's do a super group. Let's take Dave Grawl on drums. Get you know Kim Thale on guitar on like lead guitar. I guess you could take Chris Cornell on rhythm. And then, I mean, as far as vocalists go, you, you've got who's who, you know, but I like Soundgarden a lot. Like Nate was saying, I love Super Unknown. Bad, not Bad Motorfinger. It's a bad, yeah, Bad Motorfinger is the one with Rusty Cage and Outshine. That's a, that's a good album. <clears throat> but a lot of, a lot of Soundgarden, like Nate was saying, and I kind of agree with him, a lot of it's Chris Cornell, Caterwauling. And he's mm. he's doing his full tilt Robert Plant, which is some people's problem I know with Led Zeppelin is Robert Plant. So the Soundgarden's got that same thing, and uh, Super Unknown, start to finish, such a great album. Like it's their, I guess it could be like their Black album. It could be their Violator. Mm-hmm. It's so well produced and it sounds so good that I mean I'm not gonna say it's flawless because I'm sure there's a couple of songs in there I'd want to skip, but my i guess my we're plucking like memories that having to do with soundgarden 
-hmm. I think my first real exposure, maybe just in passing late at night, alternative nation seeing like the rusty cage video and thinking, yeah, that's a cool song. But really it was the black hole sun video that punched Soundgarden into my face because that video is very iconic of the time. Like it's, Mm-hmm. Got the Morphe, the Morphe eyeballs, right? You know, we're really, we're using, really using that morphing technology in our Pentium one processing computers. <laughs> and, it, you know, I was just thinking about this and I get it. Soundgarden is not Metallica as far as hugeness, but no one said anything when Chris Cornell cut his hair. <laughs> right. Right. Cause it was a big thing when all the guys Metallica cut their hair, but you know, Chris Cornell, he's in he's in singles. He's the one that blows out the, the car windows. Of his, no, he walks by Matt Dillon after Matt Dillon blows out Bridget Fonda's windows with his, the car stereo. So you see him in like the bad motor finger era. And he's got this long flowing curly hair. And then Black Hole Sun comes up and he's got short hair. I'm like, All right. <laughs> I think it's honestly, it's the insecurity of the Metallica fans. Okay. It's, it's, it's about the fact that they all were like heavy metal. Um, what was the, uh, what was the documentary? Um, heavy metal, um, the decline of Western civilization. No, it was, um, heavy metal parking lot. Basically they were just like sitting outside. They were like, they were the long haired Bud Light drinking, you know, like crowd jean jacket wearing. Right. And so whenever their hero gets like a, a buzz cut or a, or a clip, let's say <laughs> a, a, a conservative best clips. Uh, or um, as my grandmother used to call it a, a, a nice young man's haircut. <laughs> yeah. Nice young man's haircut. Then, That's all she ever wanted for me. Then they kind of freaked out because it was all about like, no man, I'll never shave my hair, man. I'm I'm too metal for for everything, and that was their image anyways. Like that was Metallica's image up until that time was that they were like the exact same guys. They were gonna be wearing you know the same stuff all their life. Nothing's ever gonna change, you know, kind of guys. So I think that's the reason why they kind of freaked out on Metallica. But like with Soundgarden, it was like you're already in an indifferent sort of grunge like crowd like who cares like what you do i i, yeah. I don't know that's just my take on <laughs> i was just i was thinking i knew we were going to talk about you know grunge today yeah yeah and i'm like i wonder why chris cornell's haircut did not get the press <laughs> you know it did not cause the fervor that hetfield showing up with short hair yeah did right like you know they all like somehow all four of those guys were samson and when they cut their hair they lost (laughs) all their power right which i'll say i I went back and listened to load it's not at all like any of the other last albums like that they've released up until that point so i kind of understand again like why people were kind of like uh what (laughs) oh yeah no it's it's a hard left turn yeah i'll give you that right it has it has its merits yeah Anyway, so Soundgarden. Yeah. Get, get off the Metallica track. We, can, we <laughs> I, can roll on that one for a long time. Yeah. I uh, I went back and, and kind of looked at like the the list right now. And it was funny because in um, this interview with Rick Beato and Chris Novoselic, Kim Thale, and one of the leading producers back in the day, Jack and Dino, they were all in a room together listening to like their old tracks. And I thought it was hilarious. There was a time it's like, 
it's like, yeah, man, you guys had Super Unknown. That was a dancey track. <laughs> and then, like, you could kind of dance to Super Unknown. He's like, uh, I live in my Super Unknown. He's like, he's like, oh, yeah, like, why don't we dance to My Wave, which is written in, like, 5-4. Like, <laughs> <I'm> like <laughs> it, he was saying, uh, Kim Thale was saying it was funny that the kids would, like, be in the audience, like, sort of dancing to it, but then everybody would be, like, kind of off because <laughs> the 5-4 <five>, time <laughs> signature. And, well, and it's funny you mentioned that anybody that – might listen to the show that grew up in San Diego in the nineties and listen to ninety one X. But they always use my wave for it's time for the ninety one X surf report. Yeah. And then it'd be like, oh it's low and choppy out here in Encinitas. <laughs> but yeah, I don't God, I don't know why. That was like twenty five years ago. I don't remember why. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> I still remember that, but I could distinctly hear in my head sometimes the it's time for the ninety one X surf report. And I don't surf. I don't even like the I don't really like going to the beach. I hate the water. Right. One of the standout tracks that always I, I had to put on time and time again was Fourth of July off of um, Super Unknown. Yeah, Fourth of July is like the super dark, I don't know, sludgy metal. I don't know. It, it was an impactful track. It was, it was almost like Black Hole Sun, <laughs> but like if Black Hole Sun was just dropped down to like, <laughs> you know, drop E or something like that, or drop uh, B almost like. Drop D. Uh, oh, typo tuning. Kind of Melvin sounding a little bit without like having that sort of like Melvin sound to the vocals, I guess. But Favorite Soundgarden track? Um hard to say because they, they have so many different feels it's like i i don't know like like what i said before what was it um blow up the outside world was great uh with its clockwork orange inspired video yeah fell on black days was cool like they had a lot of like cool tracks but it's hard to tell like one that i would keep going back to i mean spoon man was fine it it felt a little that would that that would actually be my like smells like Teen Spirit for for you like how you couldn't ret- really return to it. Ah. Spoon Man to me is like I get it, you know, it's a dude playing his spoons and it's just it was kind of it was kind of like catchy at, at like one time like they played the video over and over in MTV, but oh yeah, it was well like, Spoon Man Spoon Man dropped before Black Hole Sun, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah was like, so that was like Spoon Man was the lead off. Yeah, yeah, but it just was like I don't know. It was like on an alternative nation. It was like a hundred, hundred twenty minutes would play it. it. It just it seemed to be in like every you know kind of rock magazine that MTV would play. Well, I I, I like asking you just off the top of your head because I get ready to ask you that I have to start thinking about it. No, oh. but Soundgarden, I didn't have to think about it that much. Because really, for me, Soundgarden is like three albums. It's Bad Motorfinger, it's Super Unknown, and Down on the Upside. So I'm not doing, I'm not picking off Ultra Mega OK or anything off, anything like that. That's that's caterwauling Chris Cornell. But as far as my favorite Soundgarden song that I do continue to go back to is uh, Like Suicide, which is the last song off Super Unknown. I, 
it's got you know that slow kind of riff but like it's kind of big but it's not very big and i love like matt cameron just goes off in that song for the drums and i was like that there's no caterwauling which is nice it's like toned down chris cornell and it's like six or seven minutes long but that was always my favorite song off that album and then just dipping back into Soundgarden and listening to those big three big three records that one i love that song um so that was just my my pick for Soundgarden. Mm-hmm. although there is a little there's there's a not often discussed song off down on the upside called ty cobb which has has an awesome chorus which i won't repeat here but that's a that's just a good banger as the kids like to say <laughs> I think I put that on and it was like kind of like as a first listen, I was sort of thrown off by it. I was like, what is this doing on this track on this album? Like it was. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's like, cause it's, it's kind of, it's punk rocky a little bit. Right. And for, for such a, uh, it's almost like kickstand, like kind of kicks in. You're like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, if we could switch it up to uh Dallas and chains, um, Ooh. I, I just felt like they hit you upside the head with like a metal band with like a haunting vocal delivery was my note that I put down here. Um, they had, again, the layered vocals on certain songs and soaring metal leads via Jerry Cantrell uh, more than other grunge bands would put out there. And, um, you know, for example, the, the song Godsmack, is, it's it's strange because it has like a strange vocal vibrator sound that goes into like kind of a, a cool Scott Weiland-esque um, like kind of chorus. But um, I don't know the bangers that that always. I mean, they they have so many singles that stood out to me that like got me wrong. Rooster, uh, Man of the Box, Them Bones, Wood, Nutshell. I mean, you can go on and on. And they had a great unplugged performance. Yeah, which is weird. So you know that unplugged, like they. I guess when I was reading about it, MTV tried to get them to do that for years, mm. and I believe. Someone might fact check me on this. That is the last time Lane Staley played with them. Mm. Is that show? And then you know he kind of went off and disappeared and you know, died seven years later. But yeah. that was the last time they played together. And that unplugged is is amazing. Mm. I I would say it rivals, if not bests, the Nirvana as far as unplugs that were officially released as albums yeah he's even noted in the uh the super group mad season which um was with mike mccready from pearl jam um john baker saunders from the walkabouts and screaming trees drummer barrett martin so but like the, have you have you listened to the mad season album no i i don't know i've listened to river of deceit like a ton of times that's like a huge oh, song man. of theirs but you get okay. Give do yourself a favor and spin the Madison Season album. Yeah. If anything, if you just want like a taste, do Wake Up, which is I think the song that kicks it off. Uh, All Alone, which is a real good. You want to talk about haunting like Lane Staley vocal, and then recently I was listening to it again. There is an instrumental track on that album called November Hotel, which is like seven minutes of rock. And I mean, I hate saying like rock, like R R A W K, but <laughs> rock, rock five. exactly. <laughs> or when I moved to Colorado in, in high school, it was KBBI rocks, the Rockies. 
Rockies. Because <laughs> everything's got a rock when you're next to the Rockies. Yeah. But November Hotel, uh, give it a spin. It's really good. But there are some good songs off that Mad Season album. And then if you find the reissue of the album, you know, it's a remastered studio album. And then there's Mad Season Live. And they're playing, I mean, it's basically the album live. And hearing Lane Staley sing Wake Up live is really good. Hmm. I mean, here, let's let's diverge here for a second. Since we're talking about Mad Season, let's let's put it up to the other 90s quasi-super grunge group, which is Temple of the Dog, yeah. right? Matt, see, if you haven't really listened to Mad Season album, I don't know if this is going to be a fair fair competition, co- competitive discussion, but since we're already on Mad Season, kick over to Temple of the Dog real quick. What, what are your thoughts? Go, let's go 90s, go to today, on Temple of the Dog. Go. I mean, I, I, of course, picked up on them for, through Hunger Strike. I mean, the song that they were kind of known for on MTV, that was like one of the first times you'd see Eddie Vedder sort of out there singing his style. <laughs> for, um, <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, exactly. But like, I mean, he's just a pretty boy. He's like, he's like the pretty boy of the group. Um, he... Yeah, like Hunger Strike was like the the leading song off of the Temple of the Dog. Temple of the Dog was founded, of course, because um, the Mother Love Bone uh, singer Andrew Wood died of a heroin overdose. It was a friend of friend and roommate of Chris Cornell's. Um, so they basically he he would always write. Um, I guess the interesting uh, tidbit I took away from of of Andrew Wood and Chris Cornell's relationship is that. Andrew Wood was more about putting things down, like in recording things as as soon as he could remember them instead of waiting to just put them on paper and then kind of try to sing it in the studio. Um, So Chris Cornell actually started using that technique more and more throughout his career. So he kind of owed um, Andrew Wood that sort of like tidbit of, I don't know, creative inspiration was just to kind of get his sketches out there instead of just letting him live inside their head. But um, he even noted that um, Andrew Wood's music wasn't all that great. Like the mother of love bone, like music itself was like, kind of like, eh, like, like sort of mid, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's pretty standard alternative rock. I mean, they have a couple of good songs. Yeah. Uh, Chloe dancers, a good song, but yeah, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, kind of bog standard i guess i mean they were they were idolized over in in seattle for um i mean andrew was the lead singer of malfunction and um mother love bone malfunction itself i mean if you ever taken a look at malfunction it's it's sort of like a hodgepodge of a band that i can't really I, i've never really got into him i tried like putting it on but it's it's fine but it's just it's hard going going back and trying to listen to a lot of grunge music because it's so not of the time and a lot of it does sound kind of timely like as far as that's you know the the production and the the feel and everything it's it's just not around in the same way as it is back then you know what i mean but getting back to temple of dog I'll I'll say that the caterwauling on Temple of the Dog by Chris Cornell was a little bit much for me, like on a lot of songs. Um, oh, I yeah. do like, you know, like Say Hello to Heaven was a huge song, but to me, I can't get him. It, it, it's as if he's like trying to compete with like every other singer and every other instrument around him. 
like that's that's the way i take his voice is that he's like trying to get up above everything else like every time so it, it was a little hard to listen to over and over again but there are songs like uh pushing forward back was cool four walled world i got into and call me a dog's a good song call me a dog's fine it's just i don't know to me i i, I don't know that's just my that's that's my take on you know like what what Temple of dog was right no i just thought i'd ask you brought brought up bad season and yeah it was quick like oh Temple but of the it, dog. Was, it was it's weird because like every grunge fan sort of had that temple of the dog album <laughs> and so yeah i had it yeah so it was no i'm saying that they did have that album oh yeah like just it it would seem to be like on everybody's radar like oh yeah i have that i had temple of the dog it's like okay. yeah well and everybody had temple of the dog not everybody had above by mad season right yeah yeah for that reason i mean they they only played the one song on radio it was river of deceit i mean we can we can diverge back to allison change but, now i just thought i'd sidebar that with some temple of the dog yeah i don't mind stealing bread <laughs> I, i'll say that with allison chains because metal was not metal was in my wheelhouse but i was never allowed to own metal so i couldn't buy like man of the box um that the facelift album i couldn't buy you know certain tracks that like just you know seem, they seem to be out there and so whenever i heard metal in my brain I think immediately my brain just kind of shut off to metal because I was like, eh, I'll never own that or whatever. So when I, when I heard certain songs, like there's just sort of flowed through my brain and that's about it. So like songs like rooster and angry chair would be on, you know, headbangers ball and, and stuff like that. <laughs> and I think that was the, that's another um, sort of, like balancing device like uh, on MTV was like to throw things either in headbangers ball or alternative nation. Like what would they end up in? Because if, if you were a grunge band that ended up in alternative nation, it was like, oh, okay, you're like kind of like rock and you have a different feel. Whereas if you're on headbangers ball, it's like, oh, you're a different type of band. Like we have to, you know what I mean? We're going to play, we're going to play uh angry chair. But before that, we're going to play like November Rain, and then right. we're going to play Angry Chair, and then we're going to follow that up with like 18 in Life by Skid Row. Right. You know, one of these things is not like the other two. <laughs> and I'll give it up for Crowbar. Like, <laughs> they're like, they're going to play like the new, like Crocus or whatever. <laughs> Celtic Frost. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Eister. <laughs> we saw, by the way. <laughs> Did we? Yeah, they opened up for um for uh typo. Wait, they opened? No, we saw them again. Remember in Anaheim, the uh, when we saw them in Anaheim. Yeah, because it was it was typo and Cradle of Filth. I remember that. Yeah, because Celtic Frost was in the very beginning, and there was like, what is this like Nordic like <laughs> monk monk like walking around praying to us like in a Nordic language? Oh, I oh that oh my god, right. I forgot about that. I remember seeing typo. <laughs> oh god. Gotta love it. So yeah, so I mean, there, there was a major difference for me with Alice in Chains because they were so like metal influenced, like the the you know, in bass playing and guitar playing, especially because of Jerry Cantrell. So I mean, he really led that kind of sound 
in places where like Nirvana wasn't taking sounds and stuff like that. Like they, they were about solos and that sort of thing. But in the, but they still came out with like huge songs that would always remain in my brain. I mean, if you listen to wood anymore, that's, you can't forget about like the bass playing in it. You can't forget about oh, what well, leads off with the, that fat bass line. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Kind of the simple thing. No, you continue. Didn't mean to interrupt. Look, man, it's really easy to hum a hum a bass or guitar riff, but like trying to recreate like like that that cymbal sound. That's hard. The ride sound. Yeah, what's well, not even the right sound? It's like oh, it's it a right hi hat sound. sound? Is it a right sound? No, it's not a hi hat. Oh, no, it was, oh, it's it, a was crash. Several, it was it's several, a crash. huh? It it's was like several a, like rings, like the like the ride yeah. ring and stuff like that. But it's like uh, yeah, it's got like a little ride tap, but it's got like a crash ring and maybe even like a China symbol. Yeah, maybe like that, like that. <laughs> Put like a gong in there. <laughs> hey man, gongs are cool. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's yeah so what's, what's your what's your uh, take on Allison Chains like where Allison, you... oh. uh well I'll be I guess I'll be a little forthright so out of the big four that seem to be the the main crux of what we're talking about Allison Chains was lowest on my radar as far as that era of being a teen I was way too Pearl Jam Soundgarden probably way more just Pearl Jam I liked Allison Chains I love wood. Um, I loved when I heard when I heard wood. That song I thought was fantastic. I didn't like Man of the Box then. I mean, that was okay, but it's just it's a song, and I don't necessarily care for it as much now. So facelift was lost on me. Allison Chains is definitely one I discovered with age, but I always liked the Jar of Flies EP. I remember you and I both had that circa eighth grade. And as far as like a collection of just six songs, there's not a bad one in the bunch. Maybe the last song, the swing on this is just, it's okay. It's kind of jaunty, but they have (laughs) dirt. I mean, dirt is so good. It's like, I mean, dirt could almost be, dirt's dark. And what I like about Alice in Chains is that it's dark. They're the darkest of that big Seattle four. Mm-hmm. And Alice in Chains, I think, really delved into some areas that no one else was going into. I mean, there's if you peel back at the layers on a lot of Alice in Chains, it's it's either Lane Staley, whoever's writing it is dealing with with their their drug addictions. Let's just put it out there on Front Street. And so they're covering a lot of ground and content that Pro Jam's not touching, Soundgarden's not touching, Nirvana dabbles, but honestly, as far as a lyricist, I don't think Kurt Cobain's that great. But so I discovered Alice in Chains a little later, not even discovered, but went back and listened to more of it later on, other than, you know, the Jar of Flies EP. And, but Dirt, I think Dirt is like the grunge downward spiral, mm-hmm. right? It's got that dark and foreboding to it. And there are some like, well, it's not as uncomfortable to listen to as a downward spiral, 
but it's covering a lot of that same area. Okay, it's, so I didn't think they went that like different in sound, like you know, as far as no, I mean, our spiral went. Yeah, dirt, dirt. You don't put headphones on, listen to dirt, and like, oh, what's that? It's like a little synth beat, or what is that sampled from? Right. But I'm correlating dirt with the downward spiral, and just in what the album is, it, it's just this collection of songs, and none of them are happy. You know, there's not there's not a lot of pleasantness on dirt. I mean, mm-hmm. wood as catchy as it is and as great a song about a song as it is, you peel it back and it's like someone, I mean, not asking for help, but you know, if, if I gave this up, would you stay kind of thing? Same with like down in a hole junkhead, uh, hate to feel. I love hate to feel and angry chair. I mean, angry chair man, mentions pink cloud and, and for anybody that might be around anyone that, goes to 12 step type meetings pink cloud is a term that you hear in those meetings pink cloud is like when you're finally gotten off your problem of choice and you know you're like oh i'm so happy you know so it's very dark and i don't think anything else and i think it's kind of like that nine inch nails thing where you don't hear anything else that sounds like alice in chains you can hear a song with a great bass line sure you can hear a song with a great riff, but when you take Alice in Change, you've got great bass lines, you've got really good riffs, you've got Lane Staley's voice either by itself or when he's harmonizing with Jerry Cantrell, and no harmony set sounds like they do, right? Like the Beach Boys have harmonies, and like, okay, the Eagles have harmonies, don't judge, right? They have that traditional harmony sound, but when you hear jerry cantrell and lane staley nothing else sounds like them to me at least i've never heard anything else that sounds like them together and i've watched videos of allison chains on tour now and then playing the songs and it's musically it's the same right it's them bones it's angry chair it's all those songs but it's not lane staley singing with jerry cantrell right it's almost like you you can't have that thing anymore and I, I don't know why they, I mean, I'm sure they tour under that name just because people will come to see them because it's Alice in Chains. But they don't have that element that made them, to me, really special. That's why I think Alice in Chains stands out above the other three a little bit, is they have all these unique elements to them that you might get one of in another group, but you don't have all of them. Yeah. Like Eddie Vedder's got a good baritone voice. But it's not something, I mean, run some rock songs together and Eddie Vedder might, yeah, you might know it's Eddie Vedder, but maybe not. Might could be another singer, but Lane Staley comes on. You know it's Lane Staley. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, we even talked about to ourselves, we were like, you know, what's weird is that I was returned to Allison Chain's songs more, a lot more than I do you know, Soundgarden or even Nirvana and um, to some degree Pearl Jam. I, I still return to Pearl Jam quite a lot, but, yeah. but as far as like those bands that, I mean, and, and it's weird because I never really picked up like an album outside of Jar of Flies and um, I don't know. I, I just, I, I gained more respect after listening to like, I guess the, the singles that I remember 
um i haven't really sat down with a, an album like that and really like went into dirt i haven't really like <laughs> for some reason a lot of my the names of the mp3s are on my on my computer from allison chains are like mixed up like like i would put on mangry chair and all of a sudden you'd hear like some completely different song i stay away yeah and i'm like hold on i'm like what is going on here <laughs> so like i had to like search up lyrics and stuff that i i hadn't heard in a while from some of the dirt songs and i'm like well, they really like frustration and castration and like all these like words that are kind of like out there and and i knew like the whole thing was about like self-loathing and sort of like the whole like uh, if there was no allison chains there would be like no stained or like <laughs> any of these other bands that like kind of came up in the the post grunge world like that are like all about like oh poor me you know god i'm i'm living a horrible life you know like all all the lyrics were like that and you know be as it may i mean i'm sure that that's an incredibly difficult thing to kick is is what lane staley and and kirk Cobain were going through but i do i want to listen to a heroin like album over and over again like and probably not too much like too often you know unless you're like want to get in that kick of like oh like this very sincere and this very like you know it's kind of like listening and watching like requiem for a dream like over and over again it's like what do i want to like do that you know no it's pretty impactful on its own like for i don't know a handful of times and then all of a sudden like i'd rather listen to it for the music so that's that's the only reason why i've only listened to the the singles more than anything of allison chains but um i don't know that's be as it may i mean i still respect the hell out of them with a little perspective, you if you take the four, the big four we're talking about, and if you take their bigger albums, like if we're comparing like Super Unknown to maybe Nevermind, and then I don't, Pro, I don't know where you want to go with Pearl Jam, maybe like 10 or Versus. And I could be wrong here. Allison Chain seems the most grown up, not so much teen angst or trying, you know, like I don't fit somewhere in the world, but they're dealing with some pretty intense things mm -hmm. and it's not like because to me Kirk Cobain's just a lot of that teen angsty kind of feel but Alice Change just seemed different and maybe that's why I, as an adult I appreciate it a lot more than I did as a as a youth but <laughs> I guess that's 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 my take on on Alice in Chains yeah I, I could see that. <clears throat> I, I think just the sound alone, I think Nirvana has the the timely sound of being back in the 90s. Like it, it's kind of stuck in the era that it, they came from a little bit. That's the only kind of non-grown-up thing I see about Nirvana was that, you know, it was sort of like, okay, it's got the same kind of like older sound, like it kind of encapsulates that sound. It's sort of like listening to I don't know, Boston or something like that, like where you're like, oh, well, this is obviously like from an age older than, you know, the, the 80s, like, you know, like in the 80s, they changed up the sound a lot. And so like everything became a little, little bit more like shiny <laughs> and and more or more synthesizer. Yeah. Um, as far as and that's that's what you get i think with it's more like solidified and sort of like doom metal and and parts of um allison chains where 
it's much more like life really is hell like kind of kind of feel like versus yeah. like the kind of like it's heavy like, and not just in the riffs yeah like it, you know it's just it has that weight to it that's that is unlike the other three that are right. in the big four of of seattle yes but um to i guess wrap up our top four um if you look at pearl jam real quick pearl jam was consisting of jeff on mint and stone gossard mike mccready and eddie vetter as well as matt cameron who replaced what david bruzy and matt chamberlain who replaced the other guy named dave yeah dave Cruson and jack irons so they they were like one of those spinal tap groups that had like 200 different drummers but kind of solidified a little bit um for for matt cameron for most of it around the end at least i don't know i mean they're still going but it's not like <laughs> but they're they're one of the anomalies of the whole group in that era unless you want to count in stoneable pilots which was sort of like not of seattle sound but they definitely were around like in the era of that rocking out sort of thing same as uh smashing pumpkins and jane's addiction but um right. but they definitely had like a like a slacker sound like the the grungy sort of rocking thing that was going on with like Alice in Chains you could hear it a little bit in Stone Temple Pilots but it's not really like that um Pearl Jam though i mean they they led off in 90 uh, 1991 with 10 it was more geared like i said towards like almost like a metal crowd going into like a rocking world um, sort of sound where you could hear, you know, the lead off tracks, like even flow and alive and that sort of thing. And, and sort of understand their place in like the metal world, as far as like the rocking part of everything. Much like Kirk Cobain. I mean, Kirk Cobain was like sort of like a model S guy. He had like kind of good features, you know, like that don't really get talked about. But Eddie Vedder was like this little pursed lips, like kind of model, you know, dude that that kind of showed up in Seattle and had his own look. And there were, all the girls went gaga over him. And <laughs> and because he's purdy. Yeah, he has the curly hair, the big curly hair. And um, anyway, so. But yeah, like they they came out with those giant songs all in 10. I don't know. Do you have a favorite in 10 that really speaks to you? Oh, that's easy. Black. Okay. Yeah. Black or release. Yeah, release is great. Well, and you know, with Pearl Jam too, with 10, I don't even know how metal it is. 10 is arena rock. Yeah. Like it's got a big sound. Like Alive sounds big. Even Flow sounds big. Jeremy, not so much. Right. But to to me, ten is it's very much an arena rock, super produced album. Like I wouldn't say I know I called the black album like Sonic Ear Candy. It's not quite on that level, but ten is so slickly produced. But I would encourage you listeners, if you haven't, to listen to the ten remix that they put out. I want to say two thousand eleven. I think the the ten twenty year anniversary. They remix the album not just remastered but they remixed it and it sounds a lot better that's my preferred way to listen to it but yeah as far as if i'm picking a song off 10 it's black all the way hmm. yeah yourself um yeah i mean yeah black is a fair why is a fair release <laughs> is it why go 
Is it why go home? <laughs> it's, uh, well, I mean, honestly, it's a, this is one of those albums that like you almost want to listen to all the way through. Um, oh yeah, no, I won't argue that. But if you got to pick one song, yeah, it's, it's... all right. You're str- you're stranded. Your your copy of ten only plays one song. <laughs> what is it? Because you're playing the hit clips. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'd say I'd probably say black as well. Like on there. Okay. I mean, it's a great middle middle track for all these. Um, I mean, there there are some moments like deep that I always go back to just because they're so unlike um, stuff I've heard of Pearl Jam before. Like deep sounds like very almost going into like Allison Chain's territory, where oceans. I love oceans. Yeah, oceans is really calming and cool. It's 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 exactly what it sounds like on the on the title. It's a great title for it. Porch is like a great, um, you know, they played that unplugged, and I thought that was a great performance of that. Oh, yeah, he starts climbing, yeah. Everything. Once is kind of like a forgettable track for me. I mean, I do, oh, that the opener, yeah, like I, I do remember it, like, but it's just sort of like if you try to like throw out like what track this is, this album's from, I'd probably forget like where Once is from, honestly. Yeah, it's it's kind of just a generic rocker. Yeah, it just sort of opens up the track like uh, a lot like the verses, you know, first track. But um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it sounds just like that. <laughs> I'm just gonna have you like do like the reverse karaoke. Yeah. Guess the song. <laughs> Miserable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, I guess it's yeah. It's along there. <laughs> yeah. Then then of course they re- uh, released verses like two years later, um, which was a great. It's still in that great pocket of like rock and. Uh, verses. Uh, I know, I know. We'll we'll probably go through the the '90s Pearl Jam Uvoir. Uh-huh. Versus, I love Versus. Versus is so good because it it doesn't sound like Ten. That's for sure. It doesn't have that overproduced quality that Ten does. But oh man, Versus so good. Yeah, in between uh, Ten and Versus, we got of course the uh, I don't know if it was at the same time, but um, Yellow Ledbetter. Uh, yeah, Le- Yellow Ledbetter on the uh, Jeremy single. Uh, yeah, yeah. sometime That's... around that same time <laughs> hashtag fun fact looking at Pearl Jam in Apple Music essential Pearl Jam albums are 10 versus and Vitology yeah that's about like the three that were brought up as like some of the top 10 in, in Rolling Stones top 50 grunge albums they, they list those three as the, uh, the the top Pearl Jam song or Pearl Jam albums oddly enough looking at the versus track list right now uh i'd skip daughter i don't necessarily care for that song yeah but that was like i think the lead was that the lead single off the yep yeah Yeah. but uh just kind of looking through verses oh man how many hours did we spend playing f-zero listening to rearview mirror (laughs) yeah rearview mirror is always that was that was like the like put in f-zero put on rearview mirror and just go yeah but uh, if i gotta pick a track off of it as far as memories and what I liked then, and what I probably still like now, I'm going with elderly woman behind the counter in a small town 
And I think I'm going to closely follow that up with Indifference because I, I love Indifference. I think it's a great song. Mm, yeah. Yeah, Indifference is definitely on my my tracks. I I always return to WMA. I mean, even as weird as it is, I mean, just the the composure of WMA is it, like a very interesting take for Pearl Jam at the time anyway. It is. It's it, it's, a, it's the oddball out song on that album. Other, yeah. other, other than uh, rat uh, rats, I don't necessarily care for the song, but man, it's got a fat bass line. Do 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 do. Yeah, they they really they really switched up the sound of like a lot of the their their compositions in this one, like blood and rats. Uh, Leash was another different song, like as far as the way that that was you know like written and and it's place oh dissident dissidents on this album yeah dissident is great that's a big song that yeah. that that's a total i mean it, it is this album's not like arena rock like 10 is but dissident's got that big arena sound to it mm-hmm. oh yeah that's soaring like <laughs> <laughs> you know that song Call into Rock 105 right now. <laughs> 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 oh, it's time for the Daddy Surf Report. But first, guess this Pro Jam song. Evil <laughs> Look how it sounds like, like Eddie Vedder's guy is like singing into a bag. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the age-old joke of the adam sandler joke of the opera man yeah yeah and then i just i'm just looking at vitology right now and i remember getting this i think you got this for me for christmas 1994 vitology yeah and first off before you even dig into the album you gotta talk about the packaging yeah like that has got to be one of the most elaborate cd packaging and while i probably wouldn't play the album that much i would love to own it on vinyl just because of the packaging yeah and well at the time i mean eddie was so like on his high horse about everything should be on vinyl everything like before people were you know like getting because everything should be on vinyl well, before every like, I was gonna, say, I was gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say a slur there <laughs> against against uh, uh hipsters. Yeah, hipsters. But saying that everything should be on vinyl because like all the old vinyl used to come with like giant gatefolds with you know in included lyrics and artwork and everything, which is totally fine. I totally understand it and get it. But it's just like trying to sell that to the MP3 crowd now. It's like, what, you want to return to CDs? Like, even CDs is kind of like a, a strange thing to return to now. Yeah, but, man, I still buy records. Mm. Well, what, you want to get a cassette now, too? <laughs> like, like the way hey, that... You know what? I would. I know. There's, something about, there's something about tapes. Like, <clears throat> I know you would, because go. you know why? Because that's what a hipster would do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I'm not a hipster. I'm just an old guy who likes physical media. <laughs> I don't wear skinny jeans. I don't drink craft beer. Then get it. Then I, get an A-track player. <laughs> my keys aren't on a carabiner. I don't ride a bicycle. I don't live in North Park. I like <laughs> physical 
media. I like <laughs> engaging with my music, except when I'm baking. And then I use digital because this always happens. I'm kneading bread and, you know, the, the wall, like one side of the wall finishes and I got to go flip it. Like that's really inconvenient because my hands are covered in bread dough and flour. All right. But I like <laughs> those very specific because <laughs> it's happened. Because <laughs> it's happened like several times. Uh, I like engaging with my music. I like flipping it over. Like I've taught my oldest, my oldest kid, the girl, the 11 year old, like she kind of knows how to work the tone arm of the record player, you know, like, I, I taught my wife how to like move the tone arm. The, the very nice record player that Nate bought us when we got married, right? Like I've shown her how to like, okay, push this, lift this up. Okay, flip, grab the sides. Don't, not the middle, grab the sides, flip it over, put it back, put the drop of the arm, look for the big groove, right? Like I get it. It's a whole process. Like when we move, it's really inconvenient because I have to find bags to put them in and they're really heavy, but there's something hey, about... hey honey can you can you change my cylinder my cylinder uh, what is my cylinder record in there yeah to, yeah yeah you need to like the yeah. gram- i think the gramophone's acting up again go crank my gramophone and i don't mean that in a euphemistic <laughs> way either but yeah like he's got a point like there's something about vinyl that in a non-hipster way and i'm not going to tell you that oh it's warm and it sounds better like it doesn't always sound better but it's a romanticized idea about like the past and the stuff right. he grew up with, and he, all- he got nostalgic on his own thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So end my old man rant, but I am not a hipster. <laughs> not a hipster. I'm not skinny enough to be a hipster. I remember when the t- Model T was the way <laughs> to get around town. <laughs> no. I, I think it was just because, like, whenever anybody gets on their high horse about anything, it just becomes like, ugh, like, really? You know, Eddie would be insufferable about his wants and needs as an artist to be met with being on vinyl and stuff like that. It's fine. I mean, I, I, I can take or leave that. You know, if you have good songs on the album, I don't mind buying your passion project. It just was like hanging over me the entire time because the second song in Spun the Black Circle, of course, you're talking about playing vinyl. <laughs> and that's, I don't know. I will say uh, if we can if we can defer for a small rant on Eddie Vedder, I will say that I fully 100 percent support their 90s cause of standing up Ticketmaster. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that still needs to be done. Yeah, that is still a thing today that needs to be done because why? When I went to buy Nine Inch Nails tickets, was the the, the ticket was one hundred and forty nine dollars. Yeah, that's expensive. But then I get slapped with fifty dollars in fees, and one of them is a convenience fee because I don't have to drive to Las Vegas to buy the tickets. Apparently, that's convenient for them. I don't even have paper tickets. I had digital tickets. The first time ever I went to a concert and do I do not have an actual ticket stub, but it's it's. I remember back in my day. <laughs> hey man, don't don't I will I will go get my my stack of ticket stubs and start going through them again. Have you seen that service that will like <laughs> like digitally print out for you like a a ticket yes. that's sort of like if you, if you're missing one in your collection uh-huh. they'll just, just put it in and they they put in all the information and Yeah, they're yeah, 
in there's a, a guy in one of the I think the Nine Inch Nails group on Facebook I'm in that will do that for you for this last tour where you didn't get a physical ticket because yeah. I have the poster, but I would like you know a ticket stub to put in the frame with the poster. But anyway, that's just my side rant. I I was way into it when they went up against Ticketmaster. Yeah, I I mean, when did this come out? Ninety three. What Vitology? Or no, ninety four. Okay. Yeah, it's still my favorite year in the nineties. By the way, um, mine too. But uh, I would say that in '94, I mean, I I hadn't yet even gone to a, a show, so I didn't quite understand the the standing up part about it until I started going to concerts. And even then, like, do you remember like when tickets w- would go in different like per seat prices, like they are now? Like, it just seems like yeah, like ticket tickets an hour just sort of like weird about that. No, it's always gone by. You know, it was one price for if you wanted a general admission, and then it was each section of if you sat, each section had its own price. Like you get your three right. hundreds, which are farther away; those are usually cheaper. Two hundreds are more yeah. money. Uh, you know, one hundred is more money. But I will say, I think what you might be talking about, and I noticed this <clears throat> when I was buying tickets to see Nine Inch Nails, was you may have this the two hundreds section. Right. That's like right. 201 through 208 and it encompasses the theater, you know, row X might be 135 row M is 149. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that is a newer thing, because I remember when I was going to shows all the time, if you just bought a ticket in that one section, they were all the same price. Yeah, but yeah, no. Now it's a lot more like as you move up, it's almost like per seat, right? Like, how like it goes like yeah. you, all of a sudden you move up one row, that's an extra ten dollars. Move up another, oh, that's twenty dollars. Yeah, it's almost like they're they're controlling the entire uh-huh. <laughs> the it's, entire it's, narrative. It's almost like Ticketmaster has complete control over it, and they could just do what yeah. they want, and we all have to sit and take it. I think recently, like Blink One Eight Two tickets were like fifteen hundred bucks or something like that for like, like individual seats and stuff like that. I'm like, why? Well, and <laughs> and now all of a sudden, and I mean, this is a whole other rant, but Ticketmaster is now using like the Disney model, or maybe Disney is using the Ticketmaster model, where everything is an upcharge. Mm-hmm. You know, because you can't just buy a concert ticket anymore. When we went to see Metallica, when I, um, okay, well, when I first saw Metallica in 2017, you could get just the general admin ticket, you know, it was probably like 75, 80 bucks. And then you could buy like the, this is, you know, they get cute. So you can get like the hardwire ticket because I saw them on the hardwire tour. Right. So mm. the hardwire ticket gets you like, you get to get in 20 minutes early. And you're first to the merch booth, and then you can get like the unforgiven seat package, which gets you a little closer and it gets you like a wristband, and you get to go to the Metallica Museum, and then you can buy, you know, the $2,500 ticket, which gets you all of the aforementioned things, and then you may get to meet a band member, you know, similar to what <laughs> recently what Tool did. You yeah. can buy the concert ticket or you can buy like the gold VIP package 
where it's like a thousand dollars and you can do a meet and greet with the band except maynard <laughs> right because yeah, let's cut the front man out because like what why would we ever want to meet the front man like yeah it's like why would you want to meet the guy that most people associate that band with yeah you could talk to danny carey he might talk about drums or basketball right and adam jones doesn't strike me as a big talker and or chancellor uh, yeah chancellor i mean i don't know what i'm gonna talk to him about it. he's british like <laughs> you like bangers and mash cool so do I. um so yeah no i even as a teen i was like yeah fight the empire man and that was before i was buying tickets for shows and realizing that i bought a ticket for a show once and the ticket was ten dollars and i'm like sweet but the fees for the that ticket doubled the price yeah well, it's 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 the manufactured scarcity model. It's it's basically if you really want to go, you're gonna pay the price. <laughs> like, and you're like, I guess I do, yeah. and I guess I will, because where are your choices? You don't have a choice. What other vinyl tracks can you think of? Like, as far as like talking about like listening to talking about records, yeah, from the nineties, just any any era. I mean, I'm sure I could think of some. You put me on the spot damn i know but it's just like nothing nothing stands out in my brain other than like spin the black circle when you talk about that uh yeah i mean i I know there are i know there are but yeah spin the black circle it's funny i'm looking at the track list of itology and you know apple's got it listed as an essential album by pro jam and i'm looking at the track list and i'm like all right i'll take spin the black circle i'll take not for you uh i'll take better man and maybe corduroy but other than that nah. yeah i'm i'm, I'm fine because <laughs> yeah. if you sandwich vitology with no code you know I, i'm looking at the track list of no code and mm-hmm. i i see okay who are you that was the lead off single you know that's that's a staple i think for them off he goes it's an acoustical number i really like that song and i present tense that's mm-hmm. that's that's about it off that album yeah red mosquito was a good one i thought yeah and i remember again no code had the elaborate packaging yeah because it, it would like fold out and it had like a sleeve of these polaroid pictures see now that was really cool because it was almost like a blind box it was like what are you gonna get like you, nobody, yeah. nobody knew like what the, what was inside their copy of no code it was very cool and i distinctly remember being at a warehouse, I don't think I was buying no code. I bought that at the mall. I remember, yeah, I bought no code and be here now by Oasis on the same day. Nice. Um, what, what, which one won <laughs> in your, in your plays? Ooh, God, I think it ended up being the Oasis album. I'm telling you the <laughs> <truth>. <laughs> um, but I remember standing in line at the warehouse and seeing a sign that either they wouldn't return your copy of no code or they wouldn't buy it used if it did not contain the polaroids that yeah. was a thing because yeah, i got mine for music trader it didn't and i had some inside mine yeah i mean i thought it was really cool but as far as an album like that in vitology you could you could meld them into one good album but apart from each other they're just meh i mean i listened to vitology a, a ton just because like I said, 94 is my favorite <laughs> year. So it's like every, everything oh, yeah. out at that no, time, it's... for whatever reason, I was like super engaged with like, and that was like the third major 
album of like one of my favorite bands so i was like of course all about it i mean tremor christ i loved corduroy um nothing man um better man is fine too better man's really good yeah um immortality i think was one of, yeah i like that one too yeah might be okay oh and hey foxy mo handle on <laughs> <laughs> that's me <laughs> that's me that's yeah that's a strange i mean but talk about i mean whenever you're like a band starting off and taking risks versus like when you're a band that's already like got a label and taking risks it's like two different things it's like in the first i mean the first album they released is 10 it's like they basically were a rock outfit that didn't really take risks as far as like putting sampled music or or dumb accordion music like on bugs you know it's like (laughs) it's like i got bugs on my skin yeah i mean talk about like who cares you know really what you do on this album as long as you put it out like they the the label was like all right fine you know do whatever you want well and i think by the time vitology came out they were a juggernaut yeah so i think they were just letting them do what they wanted right which is it's odd because it's like it's like give a monkey ten thousand typewriters, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know. It's like <laughs> I think it's a room full oh, yeah, of monkeys right, yeah. with typewriters. Full monkeys with it's not one monkey with a lot of typewriters. It's several right. monkeys with several typewriters. But it's like it's like give him give him a, a typewriter and like see what all write, you know, and like exactly. You know, you expect a lot from them out of the very beginning of their out of their of their career, but then all of a sudden it's just sort of like, what are you doing? Like, what experimental thing is this? Yeah, this isn't even flow. Well, who famously did that? I mean, Neil Young did that. That's probably why they kind of picked up on that. I mean, Neil yeah, Young was um, supposed to love... produce uh, another album for their for his um, contract, and what was the one that he produced? Are you thinking about Lou Reed? Um. Well, no, Lou Reed did that too, but Neil. Yeah, Metal Machine. Yeah, Neil music. Young did that as well, though. Who Neil Young actually was? I mean, a huge grunge, uh, like Godfather or something, because like the. Oh yeah. The music that you produce with Crazy Horse is like right up there with some of these that rocked out at the same time. Oh yeah, then when when they did Keep on Rocking in the Free mm-hmm. World Pro Jam and Neil Young, that was yeah. awesome. I don't know. That's like the main. The main major four, but I mean, do you have like any other kind of grunge like albums or artists that were on your radar? I mean, we had Hole, right? Like Live Through This was a huge album. But you got Hole. And I mean, because grunge kind of melded into alternative rock. So you got your Stone Temple Pilots and your Screaming Trees and all the derivatives of those bands well here's here's my thought about that is that like once it sort of became like radio play then everybody was like taking from the radio and like they figured that like what's your nearest nirvana like song that you can play off your album so like jane's addiction had to play something like uh mountain song or been caught stealing or you know what i mean like they they had to come up with that sort of track that kind of fit the mold in a way and at the time which was what was interesting was i think grunge really opened up the doors for like so many other songs and sounds to be out there at the time which is where what 
kind of led to a lot more like industrial tracks and a lot more like I don't know anything about the jazz world, but like I'm sure <laughs> that that maybe like you know what I mean like like everything was on the table now, like because grunge was opened up in in the world of you know what I mean. I, f- I feel like it sort of opened up the the chasm for uh, any and all kind of bands to be out there, especially when you have bands like Butthole Surfers and you know more like experimental rock groups that maybe didn't sound the greatest, but people were more interested in it just because it it felt like it was grunge. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I still go back to like grunge and the alterna alterna rock love children of you know like your sponges and your stp and things of that nature like you know the guys that would have like one song and then kind of fade away i'm straining to think of any at the moment yeah but there were tons of like one-off bands at the time like um freaking she don't use jelly uh, oh the flaming flaming lips Lips. yeah but they came back i'm just saying though that like at the time was like that's you know that was like what they were buying of the flaming lips flaming lips before she's she don't use jelly was a lot more like buttle surfers where they were like playing symbols on fire and they were like kind of crazy noise and all right here you go you know, so just rattle off a quick a few quick hits is mm-hmm. you've got your 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 seattle love children you've got you know candle box silver chair I know they're not, you know, they're not even from America, but Silver Chair, <laughs> Green River, Bush. I mean, Bush. They're they're one of those like derivative alterna. And don't get me wrong, Bush has some really good songs. Blister yeah. and holds up to this day. Yeah, even their newer stuff. Their newer stuff sounds great too. Yeah, and I mean, there's some songs off Razorblade Suitcase that were good, but yeah, like you took the Seattle grunge sound if there is one cohesive sound and delineated it to all these other groups and watered it down. And, you know, you try and make that popular, right? So you get like the albums that are trying to capture some of that sound. Like if you, if you jump from like the first Skid Row album to the second Skid Row album, it's a little more alternative rock, or at least some of it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, even the horrible freaking uh, Tommy Lee produced methods of mayhem. No, um, it was like their uh the Motley Crue album that was like oh yeah, to... uh Generation Swine, right? It was like trying to be completely like let's throw some industrial in there, let's throw some grunge in there, let's let's get real real. I was gonna say there's actually a song. Quick. There's, there's a song off that album I actually really like. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a part where you say, "Of course there is." <laughs> You're, you're you're allowed to have your things, bro. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. There's a song I like off that album. <laughs> yeah, if, I, if I can listen to like 200 industrial uh, albums that sound the exact same, I think you're allowed to have your one uh, yeah. song that sounds off of Motley Crue. No, oh, okay. There's way more Motley Crue songs that I like, but if we're picking off that one late 90s yeah. Motley Crue album, there's one song. I may have to go listen to this once the show's over. Is but, it when they cut their hair? <laughs> <laughs> no, they've always had a lot. Well, no, Tommy Lee cut his hair. Yeah. Did Nikki Six cut his hair? No. No. Vince He's Neil. Had a wig. Yeah. <laughs> Vince Neil really hasn't cut his hair, but well, Vince Neil's hair has thinned while the rest of his body has not. <laughs> right. Vince Neil really looks like some of the dads I see out on the soccer fields on Saturday. 
And he still, still sings out of the side of his mouth. He can't understand what he's singing live. Oh, God. He sounds terrible live. <laughs> I've never seen them live. I've just watched clips. Like, this is horrible. Yeah. Uh, every clip I've I've pulled up is like, oh, really? Like, unless yeah. you, like, listen to the album first, and then you can understand what he's saying. But, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I'm looking at Hole and Stone Temple Pilots. Um, Tad was huge in Seattle, but I never listened to Tad. But yeah, you got, like, I like the Wet Sprocket. Yeah, Toad the Wet Sprocket is like, well, no, they're like more along the lines of like Jangle Pop and that yeah, sort uh, of... My, my Precious Gin Blossoms? Yeah, I mean, that that sort of like, I'm a dad now, so I guess this is rock and like <laughs> kind of genre. <laughs> like, I guess, well, me and the boys like to like hit a few holes and drink a few cans and go home, like kind of like, you know... Sidebar, that is not, that is not what I do with my kids. I, I know. <laughs> no, you're not a golfer. <laughs> I, I I am a dad, but I do force my children to listen to all manners of stuff that they hate. And... <laughs> Although, let me tell you, the boy has taken a real shine to listening to Tool. Oh, nice. So, so I got that going for me. <laughs> like, Dad, I want to be a uh, I want to be a monk now. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he loves Rush. Oh, he's gonna be like all about the uh oh yeah no but like he's taking drum lessons and i was in talking to him about drums i'm like oh you want to hear some drumming so i play him some tool and I'm like you hear some drumming we're like sitting in traffic i'm like here we go and i turn on tom sawyer and he's like oh this is cool and i'm like just wait for it just turn on nausea it's nothing but blast beats <laughs> you're like ah. i can't, can't yeah. deal with grand core at seven o'clock in the morning so yeah there's that um but yeah yeah there's like there's bands i mean like we saw all seven that was a huge um boon for for women in like rock um as far as like they were huge inspiration for like the the punk and girl rock bands at the time or riot girl riot bands girl. at the time um, like Seven Year Bitch and uh, Bikini Veruca Kill. Salt was on the was on the radar, but Veruca Salt was a little bit more produced than some of the other. Yeah, um, and then you got like Elastica, but Elastica's more Britpop. And yeah, and I was I would put that in more produced as well, almost like Republica sounding, like <laughs> having more of a. Um, they, they didn't sound alike, but I mean, still Elastica was definitely a cool band. But Boy Babes in Toyland. They were kind of like in the same vein, but yeah, just the I I felt the entire time it was just like this attitude of like things are changing. I mean, even though you had and and what's interesting is that this is just like the the rock movement. Like we're not even talking about like the hip or R hip hop or R and B or anything else at the time. It was just you know it was kind of strange because there was like a divide. Like they weren't really necessarily taking anything from the grunge movement. But I do remember, I mean, like Beastie Boys would be an excellent thing to go back to because that was sort of like a bridge into both worlds where you get your sabotage kind of yelling and loud drums and live live drums on Saturday Night Live. Yep. That was a really good performance. You know, all that stuff was was kind of making their, their way around at the time, but along with, you know, what, like Radiohead? um oasis yeah. mentioned blur primal scream at the time was were they not yeah but primal scream came out of so <clears throat> but they had their own thing going on like the, 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 yeah. the mad chester thing was that them 
yeah it's but it's like primal scream their first two albums sound like jesus and mary chain and then you got screamadelica which is more house mm-hmm. and dancey and then you've got give out but don't give up which just sounds like a early 70s stones album and then you've got vanishing point which they start getting into the more electronic end as far as their their 90s output so they're not they're alternative but not i think in the realm that we are speaking of right and we're not i mean uh, there's i think there's a, a distinction between alternative and the grunge movement itself because there is like this grunge movement that sort of came from playing alternative music but the alternative music that we know on on radio and stuff like that that's the alternative stations the alternative music that we were introduced to the grunge movement necessarily was more about being this indifferent this kind of slacker type of thing that was around at the time as as far as like what we were thinking of because i think there's a lot more bands that were being alternative to whatever the hit makers were at the time versus the the 80s metal and stuff like that or 80s rock but yeah but there, there was like a lot of 80s rock that was like still sort of sounding alternative Oh, well, that that's like its whole other thing where you get into the like the 80 college rock the you know, you got the the the, the love and rocket give you everything, everything, anything drama rama. Yeah. And, you know, um, I mean, the Pixies, all that, you know, the replacements, Husker do. Yeah. All that, all that stuff. Yeah. I almost called the the grunge movement almost like the safe punk movement, like where it was like it's palatable, you know. Well, yeah, tolerable, and like if you listen to punk, it, a lot of it can be insufferable with its messaging, but it's still trying to tell you something, and it's you know, like if you how do how do I describe it? It's like I knew a lot of punks back in the day, like that at least at least from their version of punk and whatever they wanted to be. It it just it felt more manufactured. I felt because we weren't in the middle of a lot of that stuff that we were listening to. We weren't listening like uh, I was never in England. I was never <laughs> you know like around at the time of of Thatcher, and I wasn't like you know what I mean. So like all these lyrics that we would listen to and quote, it was not part of my daily life. So I felt a little bit you know what I mean disingenuous. Like well, like disjointed from like the movement and the message. It's like, yeah, yeah, stand up for against Thatcher. It's like I don't <laughs> like I'm you're I'm not a working six here. I don't you know <laughs> like I don't have any connection to the Thatcher as as a six year old. You're you know? not you're not a working class Briton, right? <laughs> I mean, I enjoy like the look, and I think that that's most of it is that like you get you get to be around those that you want to like kind of emulate and then you sort of like figure out what they're into and then you're like well is this really me or is it not and i think that's the adult part when when you sort of like settle yourself down and be like i guess i'm not that you know right or or there's a fraction of me that's into that and can understand it but it's not all of of myself it's not like everything it's, like that I'm, you are yeah, it's a multi-layered potato in here. <laughs> <There's> like, <laughs> the, the onion. Kind of like, it's an like, onion. They have layers. Well, I like peeling back the layers <laughs> of the potato better. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Peeling back the layers of an onion. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, if we learned anything from Shrek. 
Is that a line from Shrek? Yes. <laughs> Ogres okay. are like onions. Time. They have layers. It's been a long time since <laughs> I've seen that. I think it's hilarious how, like, how different in general, like, uh, people's references are, like, in, in as far as, well, not their references, but their perspectives are. Because I was thinking about perspectives, talking about grunge nowadays, and it's like, I don't think anybody really cares necessarily about the grunge movement. I mean, as much as like anybody cares about the Grebo movement or the or Madchester necessarily, unless you pick up those exact albums, right? I wonder. I wonder how much that really like plays a part in anybody's like daily life. Well, and I think for at least for grunge, since that's our topic du jour, I think grunge mm-hmm. is really it stayed with the people who are of that age. But if you weren't into it, you don't really give it a, a moment's thought. Yeah. It's kind of like going to like the uh, festival and like a, a hippie wear or something like that and being like, you know, of the age where you could appreciate Jimi Hendrix or something like in, in live, you know? Yeah. It's like, yeah, no, yeah. music has definitely changed since then. But <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It was an interesting time. It was. Any final thoughts or? I, grunge, um, grunge Seattle, I mean, early 90s alternate rock. It's still pretty heavy for me it's i still listen to it i still love it still think a lot of it's great i have different perspectives and i i listen to differing things now that i didn't listen to when i was younger i may listen i may be more apt to listen to alice in chains now over nirvana almost every single time uh after no code pearl jam kind of fell off with me and i don't listen to them like i used to or if i do listen to pearl jam i stick with like the first four five albums i don't really branch off past yield or no code yield yeah yield i don't branch off past yield i bought binaural when it came out and i just wasn't into it Mm -hmm. so yeah to me it's it's still relevant today but i think if you're not of that age or didn't grow up in that era it might not have that staying power that you know, some of the stuff we had to hear as kids does. Like, I don't think grunge produced a Fleetwood Mac or something. And now Nirvana is just something you slap on a t-shirt. Yeah. I've been seeing a lot more Nirvana t-shirts out here in the Midwest. And I mean, I think maybe it's just like an appreciation type thing. It's like your, your parents, you know, like you just said, you, you listen to tool, like your kid listens possibly to some tool. And then he's going to wear a Rush yeah. t-shirt and you'd be like, hmm, like, were you around? Like, what's your, you know, and then you started being judgy. You'd be like, well, what's your favorite, you know, Rush song and this, that, and the other. And it's like, because I, <laughs> yeah. I have. Well, it's like, it's like, you know, my two girls went to school and it was like rockin' school day. Mm-hmm. Right. So everybody's wearing band t-shirts. And I said, you know, both those girls went to school in Nine Inch Nails t-shirts. You know, do they listen to it not particularly i mean i have to skip a lot of stuff when it comes to that Mm -hmm. you know do they really care for it yeah no you know one of them might appreciate it as they get older but yeah it's definitely look daddy i'm a surfer (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) like like a lot of the grunge stuff like (laughs) doesn't have i don't want to say it doesn't have the staying power but like all you see now is people our age talk about Pearl Jam. Okay. People our age and older still talk about Pearl Jam and they're the ones going to see Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. But you don't see 
Pearl Jam is not a brand, right? Soundgarden is not a brand. Stone Temple Pilots is not a brand. Nirvana, Kurt Cobain may strike me dead right now, but Nirvana now anymore is just a brand. It's a, a thing on a t-shirt. Like, I don't think the the kids I see at the middle school I work at wearing Nirvana shirts would be able to tell you the difference that this is, you know, um, come as you are, and this is heart-shaped box. Like, they don't know. I still feel that Nirvana is more than its music, though, because it's like it's more the character of the like the group themselves. Like they, you know, I mean, like like they they didn't have those the characters that they did in Nirvana in Alice in Chains. I didn't find Lane Staley all that hilarious. I didn't find you know, like <laughs> like I didn't find even you know Eddie Vedder can be kind of funny at times but like I I find him more insufferable than than you know than anything sometimes where it's like like not everything has to be politics not everything has to be you know like this that and the other and a cause yeah and I just I feel like and even Kim Thale in his interview was saying that like I wish I had smiled more back in the day like and like taking time to like really appreciate and have fun with the time rather than just sort of be Mr. Serious and do his thing, you know? And that's what I took immediately from Nirvana was that like, it was just such a slap happy group. It's like, it's like Jolla Biafra, you know, like when I put on like a, a dead Kennedy's shirt or something like that, I see like Jolla Biafra. I don't see, you know, like necessarily holiday in Cambodia or whatever, like in my brain, like <laughs> it's like a, an association thing for me. So I wonder if, I wonder if today, like, can can look at like videos and stuff of Kurt Cobain and be like, okay, that was this guy, because he really did have like a likable sort of personality to me, like that I would yeah. that I would want to listen to, and and I love his interviews, I love his his quotable lines, I mean, you know, there's just uh, there's a lot more to Nirvana than I guess their music, and that's it just happened to be that they produced three albums and like we're out of there, you know, <laughs> like so. But yeah, that's that's all I can really think about for for the grunge stuff. I mean, that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, so if you enjoyed us, um, well, you can check out our what we have. Well, do we have an Instagram right now. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah, all of our socials are going to be in the show notes. You can check us out on what Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, Amazon anywhere you get your podcast to you yeah awesome well we've been the boys in the 90s then and my name is nate and i bob if i would could you <laughs> <laughs>